Welcome to Barn Blog, where our aim is to give you the best in analysis and philosophy, political economy, history, art, culture, and geopolitics from a left-wing and socialist-friendly perspective. We aim to bring you different perspectives from different walks of life and to have you educate yourself what to do with what you learn here. We do not aim to give you prefabricated and easy answers. Abandon all hope, ye who subscribe here, for you will learn, and it will be your responsibility what you do. And with that, let's begin today's episode. Hello, and welcome to Varmblog. And today I am with Todd McGowan, um, faculty member at University of Vermont in the Film and Television Studies Department, and author of many, many books, including Enjoying What We Don't Have, um, The Real Gaze, Emancipation as the Hegel, Capitalism and Desire, a fair number of film studies books and what we're speaking about today, uh, recently out from Sublation uh, Press, Enjoyment Left and Right. And I recently read your book and have listened to some of your talks on this, and I have been interested in the way that you are kind of reframing the political um, elements of enjoyment. Um, but without the context, um, it is that's going to seem almost like a frivolous or absurd phrase. So let's go in. Um, okay. Your discussion of enjoyment really starts with one of the earlier books by Slavoj Žižek. And can you go into what inspired your framing of enjoyment as a political act? Yeah, you're right. Like so, there's a early book. I think it's 1991 or 92 by by Slavoj called "For They Know Not What They Do," and then the subtitle is "Enjoyment as a Political Factor" or "Enjoyment as a Yeah." Polit- I think that's the title. Uh, and yeah, that 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 idea is very important to me. And it's I felt like that book didn't like it. Sort of started on the path of explaining what that might be, but then it didn't fully. It's more of a book on Hegel and not so much a book on enjoyment. It's a great book on Hegel, I think. Um, not so much a book on enjoyment, but that that you're right. That did sort of that did set me in this direction, uh, or was one of the influences, I should say. And then I, I guess the more I mean, one of the things that was really influential was the ele- several elections, like the election of Bolsonaro in Brazil, the election of Trump in the U.S. Th- those. And the, the the role that it was it was pretty clear to me that it wasn't in self interest it wasn't economic considerations it was it wasn't even necessarily political positioning in the way that we standard understand understand that but it was more this enjoyment factor that was driving people to decide in the way they didn't support what they supported so that those were the that was the more immediate background of, of writing the book for sure. So I think one thing that one has to kind of parse here um, is enjoyment as a psychoanalytic concept, as opposed to like it's common everyday use. Um, 
And I wanted to get your particular take on what political has uh, political enjoyment has to do with uh, both its distinction from, say, pleasure and the pleasure principle from Freud, and then surplus enjoyment from Lacan. Yeah, for sure. So that you're absolutely right that one of the difficulties of the book, one of the wagers of the book is that you have to make, the, on the one hand, I'm using a term that's common, enjoyment. Everybody uses the term probably every day. Uh, but on the other hand, you have to you have to make the distinction and try to clarify that. So that's part of what I do in the beginning. And, I, and as you say, I distinguish between what Freud calls pleasure principle and then enjoyment is this is linked really to what Freud calls beyond the pleasure principle in, in his 1920 book. So pleasure is for Freud, this uh, evacuation of excess stimulus or excess excitation, uh, a kind of a letting go. And I think we've all experienced that. Like you, uh, you, you feel hunger and you satisfy that hunger and you've, and all of a sudden that, that excess stimulus of the hunger is gone and you're satisfied that would be pleasure for Freud. Uh, and then for, for me, the excess, then you may use the term excess and, and Lacan does use the term plus de jouir or surplus enjoyment as it's translated. And the, the idea for him is that it's this excess pleasure beyond pleasure, right? So the pleasure to the point at which it becomes painful. So uh, something like you know, there'd be pleasure in eating a piece of cake. There'd be enjoyment in eating five pieces of cake where it's like you're stuffing yourself. It's too, it's too much. And yet there's an enjoyment attached to that. And I, I would argue that there's an enjoyment attached to every kind of I mean, eating is a pretty interesting thing. Like any kind of eating that we know that's bad for us and yet we do it anyway. So there's a, there's an enjoyment. The fact that we know that it's bad for us, that's that, that sacrificial dimension, I think is really important to how we conceive enjoyment. And, and that sacrificial element is really crucial to this political enjoyment. And uh, when I was reading your book, I was having flashes of like Rene Girard and, and Carl Smith and all this, particularly when we were talking about this on the right. But how is political enjoyment tied into sacrifice? That doesn't seem a, a immediately obvious to most people. Right. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be immediately obvious. But I think that there's no... So one of the things that people sacrifice, and I think this maybe makes it a little clearer or a little more evident. One of the things people sacrifice is their self-interest. So their, and I think the way in which in, in the U.S. it's pretty clear the way in which the main supporters of the Republican Party are those that don't benefit necessarily financially from their policies. So it's an interesting, strange arrangement, I think. Yet they... The, the, and the fact that they don't benefit, I think, is what creates this sacrificial element. I mean, the sacrifice is clearer in the case, I think, of more extreme political movements, because, you know, like you think of the book burning under uh, with Nazism, you think of, you know, lynching in the American South, uh, all kinds of, I think, the more extreme movement, I think the more evident the sacrifice, but I think it's nonetheless present even in the most moderate political position. There's some element of sacrifice of use, utility, interest. That's what's always sacrificed, something that's useful, something that's self-interested, and then that's given up for the sake of a political, for this political enjoyment. Hmm. Now, um, 
that immediately reminded me of Rene Girard and his scapegoat theory. Um, no, I'm not going to go into that. I, I realize it is a different theory because mimesis is not as, as much at play here with psychoanalytic categories. But in, in what ways is, is mutual sacrifice so constitutive of enjoyment and and why does this lead to seemingly paradoxical political stances and and i can i'll go to some of those in your book after you answer that first question okay yeah sure so i mean the i think the gerard comparison is interesting and i i i I definitely see that the only thing i would say is that i don't i think that my conception of sac i think for gerard it's not sacrifice is never it's 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 always sacrificing something else, right? Like it's never mm-hmm. this self-sacrifice. And for me, the political political enjoyment has to be constituted through self-sacrifice. Some I'm giving up something out of of myself, not just I'm sacrificing some virgin or some you know some kind of firstborn something. Or, or but mm-hmm. in fact, it's it's it has to be this self giving up of part of this one's own interest. And I think you're right also to say that mimesis, my conception of desire would not be that of, of Gerard in that sense. But I, I think that for me, the, the idea that would is that that without this, without giving something up, we don't create something of, of a transcendent value that we can enjoy. So it's through for me, I think that's what is the key to why we sacrifice something that when we give it, when we when we give something up. We create an empty space where something has a value beyond the merely present and empirical. And I think that's really, for me, the key of why why this link between sacrifice and enjoyment. So this will actually make the political parts of this make more sense. And I wanted to go through these basics for my audience if they haven't uh, read your book or just they're not familiar with Lacanian psychoanalysis in general. Um one thing that I find interesting about the way that you posit enjoyment left and right is that enjoyment as a sacrificial act seems almost inherently um, right wing ish yeah. in its orientation. Yeah. Um, and I think if I remember the book in question correctly, he kind of argues that, you know, basically leftists and liberals don't have enjoyment. That's why they give into policing and are unfun. And, and while I tend to think there might be a grain of truth to that, that seemed too simple to me, but also that the enjoyment that you're talking about on the right is also paradoxical because um, you have the self-sacrifice, but then you also have this constant drive to project that sacrifice onto another right. as a kind of, community creation thing and this is what this is the thing that seems the most like gerard um but in doing so it puts them in a kind of instantaneous position where you it's like wed queen uh queen creep like the moment you find then you go to sacrifice the thing you projected your own sacrifice upon you're going to have satisfied the desire it removes back to pleasure then it's solved can't maintain the political subject after that right and then you're going to project it onto some new group. So you're going to always have this jumping around uh, of groups, which will, for at minimum, make the object of the political subject smaller and smaller over time, necessarily. Because, you know, 
if you actually succeed in purging the, the the other which you are projecting this upon, that's just fine. Your community, well, your community's done the thing it needs to do, and it doesn't have anything else to, to do again. And so you have to constantly posit something new. Um, how do you see this manifesting in contemporary politics? And did did I did I describe your argument correctly there? Perfect. Yeah, that's perfect. That was great. I th- I really like the way you said that, and I think that you you, you nicely get at the paradox, right? Like the more you win as a conservative or as a reactionary, as a right winger, the more you lose, right? Like the more you get rid of that, 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 that figure that you've projected as the obstacle to your enjoyment that then you, you actually are secretly enjoying through the more you, the more that's eliminated, the more you lose the very thing that gives you your enjoyment and that structures your community. So I think that that's really, it's a really, I think that's really the, 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 the paradox that ends up undermining the conservative position or especially in its more extreme forms. And I think that's why they tend to burn themselves out pretty, pretty quickly. I mean, the one interesting little caveat is that anti-Semitism in Germany was at, was the strongest in the places that were the fewest Jews. Right. So, so if that, if that enemy doesn't exist, you can create it. You can just imagine it, fantasize it into being right. So there's always this ability I mean, you said seek out new targets. Yeah, that's one way. But the other way is just to fantasize the old one as if they're there. Like the more they're eliminated, the more power they have, right? So th- I think that that can work pretty well. And I think an interesting example of that to, 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 to answer your question today would be this idea of critical race theory, right? Like it doesn't, I, I teach in academy. I, I know a couple people that teach critical race theory, but most of the people that teach about racism aren't invested in critical race theory. They do teach about racism, but they're not, they wouldn't consider themselves critical race theorists. So it's kind of, it's a thing that has such a small target, but it nonetheless has to be fantasized into being pretty big. Same thing with the mm-hmm. term woke, I think, or, or even I was just reading this, this right before we got on about woke capitalism, right? Like this, this contemporary target, like that, too many capitalists are woke and they need to get back to just trying to earn money. And again, like I, I know a few people that trade on wall street and I wouldn't call them like woke is about the farthest thing from what I would call them. So I think that again, like it's the way that you create that thing. If it doesn't exist, like the the less it exists, the more you have to do this phantasmatic work of creating it into existence. Yeah, um, I think that's a, that, that's a pretty big and important caveat and one that I think is actually really useful to think about. I mean, I think about, for example, uh, I, I've studied like the historical development of anti-Semitism and things like anti-Semitism, which is weird forms of racism that focused on uh, semi-oppressed middle category, uh, Jews and some cultures, Chinese people, Parsis uh, in India, and some of the most anti-Semitic writings, for example, out of Russia, as and particularly the Russian Orthodox Church, is like in the 15th century, and there were no Jews there. Right. Like it was all rumors of Jews from like Saint John just Chrysostom, which then comes back later as actual pogroms against Jews, like 200, 300 years later. But when the writings are beginning, there's literally no no Jews in the Rush in the Russian Empire and Arden State of Moscovy at that point. Like it's not a thing. So. That's a that's a very interesting point. I think critical race theory is a, a very interesting one because, you know, it it the the more phantasmagoric it is, almost the the easier it is to 
to uh, to also put us in weird to put the opposing political tribe or whatever into defending a thing that they may not even understand themselves because it's so narrowly constituted. Like, like I have got into debates about critical race theory um, and I will listen to someone like, I don't know, Rufo at the Manhattan Institute say that um, critical race theory is Marxist. And I'm like, if you've actually read the anti-racist literature, yeah, there is a way in which there is a relationship to critical race theory and Marxism in a very arcane way through uh, standpoint epistemology from Lukash into uh, uh, um, Kimberly, etc. But most of the arguments in the anti-racist world against critical race theory actually come out of Marxists. So it's a very strange uh, connection. And yet you also feel like since what's being attacked is something else, which is just anti-racist teaching in general, or even teaching uncomfortable history in general. Right. Um, which you can't say, right. I mean, that's, what's interesting. Like you can't say I'm against anti-racist teaching. So you have to say I'm against critical race theory. Right. Yeah. And then also conversely, You'll get people defending critical race theory who have never really heard of its tenets and have a tenant thrown at it. And they're like, oh, I don't believe in that. But they're, they can go, oh, you were just defending critical race theory. So that's I mean, that's a, a useful construct. And I can see that. But it still seems like it would exhaust itself eventually. Like it's just going to, you know, you can't I feel like you can't play off the same boogeyman forever. Without something happening. <laughs> I, I agree. I agree. I mean, I, I do think like to come back to the point, like I think. It is true that the more extreme the movement, uh, the more it does tend to burn itself out. Just, I mean, just because if your pogrom is successful, you you don't have the people to to target anymore. I mean, like that's. So I think that absolutely is is a is a factor and is true, right? Like that's a that's a thing. Like if if which is why I think a lot of the time, the 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 people doing it want to fail. Like I think this is an interesting thing with with uh, Trump and the wall, right? Like, I mean, he knows that the wall is not going to keep out Im- immigrants in, out of the United States. But the point is, the point isn't keeping them. It never was about keeping them out, right? It's about sustaining them in a certain position. So I think, I think that the, it tends to be that the people that are doing, I mean, Hitler's a, is, is a different case. I think like clearly he wants to eliminate all Jews, but not initially, right? Like initially, there was this idea of moving them somewhere else so that they could still function in this way as a kind of as a kind of universal villain for him. So I, I think that it's I think that I do think that the oftentimes the people even doing the ideological, you know, pointing out that this there's this uh, this figure that needs to be sacrificed for us to be able to enjoy. Oftentimes they know they don't want to eliminate it. Right. Like they know that they need that figure there. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's a clear reason why, like, the anti-black racist didn't really want to get rid of um, all black people immediately. Right. Um, right. Um, I think that's, you know, that feels very Lacanian, and that's if you get what you want or what you say you want, then it's all going to fall apart. Right, right. That is true. That is true. I mean, that's probably... That idea is probably my biggest debt to Lacan, right? That 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 we don't. I mean, 
he doesn't make this distinction, but he kind of does that we want our desire satisfied, but not realized, right? Like we want, we satisfy it by not getting our object, but we don't want to realize it by actually getting our object. I think, I, I think that's pretty right. I think that's just, that makes a lot of sense to me. It always has. So I think where this gets more interesting, I mean, the, the right wing construction of it's pretty obvious. I also think that's where, when I mentioned Gerard, that's where it clearly rhymes. Yeah. You can see this whole sovereign exception in the state of the enemy thing. And like the yeah. conservative. Yeah. Carl Earth, Schmitt, right. Yeah. Carl Smith, definitely. Uh, Smith sees it as both um, as both ontologically and theologically necessary that there always has to be this this enemy. It is always an existential threat, and and so forth. But what I find more interesting about the the book is your response to Zizek's like basically, well, you know, leftists are are a stick in the mud. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. um, and. In some ways, I mean, in some ways, I, my personal experience uh, is sympathetic to that initial stereotype that Zizek is operating from, that we tend to police, we tend to act as if we have uh, power that we don't actually have in policing, which is uh, not exactly part of the argument here. But there's something else about the left, too, that you point out that I think is that is interesting. And that is like, we have a universalism that's manifested negatively almost like, like in non-belonging and that that there's an insight into that. That's at tension with this other thing that we're describing here. The Zizek, the super ego function that the, that the, you know, uh, the left seems to be operating on. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really good though. I like the way you put that and that, that, I see what Slavoj talks about, about that super egoic left as a retreat from what I see as leftist enjoyment. Right. And so, and, and, and you described it perfectly. Like it's the enjoyment for me, it's the enjoyment of non-belonging and it's universal. And you're right to say it's universal in this negative sense, right. In the sense that it's a universal non-belonging. And I, I, my contention is that actually right-wing enjoyment, even though it seems like that's more primary is actually parasitical on left-wing enjoyment because all enjoyment is joy- enjoyment of non-belonging, I would want to say. like, and, and of course, the right projects that non-belonging onto someone. It's like, oh, no, that's the person who doesn't belong. We enjoy through attacking them, and then we feel like we belong. But, the, but in reality, I think they're actually partaking of the enjoyment of those they attack, right? Which is why, you know, the, like think if you think of the stereotypes that, the conservative figure evokes like they the, all those stereotypes are stereotypes replete with enjoyment like hoarding like money or like sexual licentiousness whatever drug use all these things they're all ideas of enjoy excess and enjoyment and they're attributed to this figure that doesn't belong and i, I my idea is just that that's really the leftist form of enjoyment is that you know like we all don't belong together and and i think you know, I, I talk about the film Heather's at the end of the of the book, and I really mm-hmm. like that ending of that film where it's it, the the figure of that's been on the inside throughout recognizes that she's going to move to the outside and embraces the, the the ultimate figure of non belonging at that high school. So it's I, I think it's an interesting counter liberal 
ending to most of the teen films end up very liberally, right? Like everybody belongs, everybody's included. Let's just, let's make a world where we don't have, I think of the ending of Mean Girls, which I kind of like, but it's about that same idea. Like anybody that tries to, to throw someone out of the, we, 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 we have, we have ways of dealing with them. So everybody belongs. The ending of Heather's is actually no one belongs. And I'm going to, the person that belongs goes outside. And I, I, I love that. And I think that's the, to me, that's the leftist ideal that we retreat from through this super egoic, whatever form it takes, like canceling, what, you know, any of these upbraiding, whatever. Those seem to me super egoic retreats from non-belonging. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a lot of con- interesting conceptual stuff to talk about there, but there's also just, you know, uh, you, you probably, you may or may not know this about me. I'm like, I, I am, and now I'd feel comfortable saying I'm a scholar of Christopher Lash. Okay. Um, and, uh, and I feel comfortable saying that cause I've read all the books and like most of the papers and, um, to write a book on him. And I was interested in what he characterizes the parties that like he does kind of this social psychoanalytic and culture of narcissism where he characterizes the party. He describes conservatives as the party of the super ego in the Fordist economy in, in specific is what he's talking about. And what I find interesting about what we've seen uh, on the right is that's not true anymore. No one would say that the, 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 the right, you know, because the reactionary right is primarily super egoic in its function and um, anymore. Um, definitely seemed like it was in the 50s, 60s, and 70s to some degree, maybe even a little bit into the 80s, still in law and order Reaganism. But there is definitely uh, this want to transgress that you see on the right, even if it's also in the same time in establishing a community and and blah, 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 blah. So you have this whole um, double identity that you uh, you do kind of identify this yeah. with right-wingers, where they're both insiders and outsiders simultaneously. And this is crucial to um, their conception. I mean, you see this in a figure like Trump, who is both very much an inside man and always playing as an outside establishment, even when he's running for re-election as an incumbent. Absolutely. What, Absolutely. Uh, um, um, now, what I find interesting about your conception of the left is, if I take Lash's category seriously, what, what we've seen is um, Lash conceptualized he didn't actually call the left the party of the of the of the id in but he strongly implied that's what he meant um in in culture of narcissism um but it, it indicates that actually our the liberal understanding of the left and i'm gonna put that asterisk there yeah is kind of a super egoic function for universalism so we're all going to belong, but to belong, we have to all follow certain norms. We have to all right. have a very similar moral framework. We have to all have a, we, we, we have to celebrate difference, but difference in very specific coordination. Why do you think, you know, you said that was a kind of an overcorrection from this other, like it's leftist fear of its own enjoyment. Yeah. What do you think is driving that fear? 
I think it's pretty horrible not to belong, right? Like I think <laughs> I think it's I think people are terrified by that. Like I think that there's something really anxiety provoking about the leftist position, frankly. Like I think that it, I think that they're, you know, like even I think even Marx in a certain way retreats from it. Like I think it, you know, with the notion of I mean, he doesn't speak that much about it, but the notion of we're going to enter a society that's where production is going to be unleashed fully, right? And there's going to be, I think there's, he thinks there's going to be a, a, we're going to overcome contradiction, right? And I think the leftist position is actually, no, we're going to be beset by contradiction, precisely this contradiction of, of non-belonging, right? Like we're going to, like our, our, the only thing that we're going to belong to is non-belonging. That's the fundamental leftist contradiction, I think. And so there's a, it's just, there's something very anxiety provoking about that. And I think superego is on the right or the left. I think superego is much more like, even though on the one, it's much more comforting, even though on the one hand, it does, it never lets you go, right? Like you never feel like you've satisfied it, no matter how much you pay to it, it always wants more. But on the other hand, it, it has this promise of belonging that's attached to it. And I think that's what, you know, the, the, a certain, the conception of leftist enjoyment that I have, and I think that many leftists share, doesn't have that, that, that promise attached to it of belonging. And I think that's, I mean, that's the other, that's one reason why capital is so effective too, as a structuring system, right? Because it's, it suggests that if you, accumulate enough or you accumulate the right commodities, then you're going to feel the sense of you really belong. But I mean, if you look at the behavior of any of the richest people in the world, it's clear they don't feel like they belong no matter how much. It's almost like the more you get, the less you feel like you belong. Yeah. And it seems more true, actually, the more capital is developed, too. I absolutely Uh, think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, I, I think, I think that's an interesting insight. I was thinking as, as uh, you, you were talking about this, about a certain tendency that, that I find in Marxism that I've always been fascinated by. Um, and it comes out of Marx's particular Hegelian form of thought, but why is the proletariat, the revolutionary subject? Well, the proletariat's revolutionary subject because everything depends on him or her or it, I guess. Um, because the proletariat as a whole can't is crucial to the whole system. The whole system works on it. But if the, if the proletariat realizes that its role in the system shuts it out from ever truly benefiting or even, or even receiving all that it contributes to the system, then it has no place in the system, but to overthrow it. Like the non the, the belonging is seen the proletariat can't belong to capital in a way. It's right. not in its absolutely can't. right, right, right. Like if there was Marx's ideas, if the if the if there was a proper remuneration for the what the proletariat contributes, then capitalism would would founder, right? And I think that's right. absolutely correct. I don't think there's any problem. I mean, that seems exactly right. So, like the proletariat would be the figure of non-belonging in Marx's system, but you know, he 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 does. When you say he's Hegelian, he's Hegelian in a very certain sense, right? He's a Hegelian in the sense of the master-servant dialectic, because the whole point of that is that the servant is the motor of is the motor of the entire the rest of the phenomenology after that point, right? So the point is that the the master depends upon the servant, can't recognize the that dependence. And then when it does, then it's 
its its position is is undermined. Like it doesn't have, and so I think that he really took a lot out of that. Like many readers of Hegel, I think he took a lot out of that one little part and really ran with it. Yeah, the master servant dialectic is is a fascinating thing to realize, particularly in light of. I always talk about uh, dialectical anthropology, which is like the the idea that. Uh, how do I put it this way? One of the things I've learned from from Hegel that I've taken very seriously is the construction of self is never either individual or collective, but the individual is only possible because of the realization in some kind of collective which reflects its existence back onto itself. This is the whole phenomenological identity thing. Yeah. And the irony in the master servant situation, and you pointed this out in your book, and I've heard you point it out in, uh, on your show too. Uh, um, why theory? Why theory? Yeah. That's yeah. Um, is that the irony is that the master needs the servant, not just, he's not just dependent on the servant in some, abstract or even physical sense but he also needs recognition of the servant to belonging but the servant necessarily cannot be the master's peer and thus can't fully belong meaning that he can never have justification of a self in in the other and i I think it's interesting that that mark sees this as the driver of class struggle but what i find what i've always complained about in marx um and I'm probably more of a a strict Marxist than you. I don't know, but probably. Um, <laughs> um, is that um, Marx limits this whole self-creation thing to classes. And he's mm-hmm. right about that in classes. And he's right about social reproduction. He's right about the, the ideas that you can manifest and are limited in social reproduction. But he doesn't really have an individual theory of mind for dealing with this. Like, he doesn't talk about the way individuals work, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the, this leaves him susceptible to things like you were talking about. I don't just think you see this in the, um, in the construction of, say, um, the the society without contradictions. I also think you see it in stuff like Marx having so much anxiety over who is not lumpen now and who is lumpen. Now I think lumpen actually is a valid social category. Um, I'm not against its use or anything, but that Marx tries to, and Marx is for sure. Maybe, maybe this is a little bit too much on Marx himself, but you, you cannot deny that it is a history of Marx's thinking use the lump in the same way that the bourgeois use the proletariat as something for which you are defining what you are not, which is why, like, when you see the list of categories of things that get thrown into lump in, you're like, there's nothing that drives this category together except a perception of criminality. Um, because it's not even like Mark says it's, oh, these people live off of other people parasitically, but on some of the categories he lists, they kind of don't. Right. Um, um, and then he has groups of people that he just can't figure out, like desperate retirees. He throws them in the lump in, in the letters he throws. Um, he's not sure about like precarious service sector workers who have to, uh, who don't really have stable employment. He throws them into lump in, and he talks about, 
He's and then he has to create yet another category that he creates with Ingalls, which is the lumpen and the lumpen properly speaking, which is like, like, okay, so we have the lumpen that don't suck and the lumpen that do suck. And, you know, and you just see this dynamic. And what I find interesting is to tie this back in to your point and your point in the book is that there is kind of a circular logic around criminality there. And this is not me saying that a lot of things that we call criminal are like socially good. I don't, I think a lot of that stuff is actually bad, but, um, one of the things about criminality and let's compare this with the right when the right talks about the criminal well it's circular a lot of times why is something bad because it's illegal why is it illegal because it's bad homosexuality for example when it was uh back before 2004 why is why are sodomy laws okay because homosexuality is illegal why is it illegal it's because it's bad why is it bad because it's illegal that's our only real justification you have in a complete circular loop um and I think that's that that again goes back to that thing that you were talking about in the beginning, where it's better when something is like self-obvious but also removable. Yeah. Like if we actually stated a reason, let's say we give a sociological reason why uh gay activity w- was bad, okay, you throw AIDS out. Well, then you take care of AIDS. Uh what's your next excuse? Like, whereas yeah. if you define it by this shift of criminality, it does the same thing. And I think it's interesting because the left does get tempted to doing the same thing. And it seems like when we do that, we lose like right, right. consistently. Right. 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 I think that's absolutely right. I, I yeah, I think that the, you know, the, to me, the question of criminality or not, I also think there's a kind of temptation on the left to fall in love with the figure of the criminal as a radical figure. And I think that's a, mistake yeah, yeah. But, yeah but i yeah, i think that that's i think you know like legalistic like to me nothing can replace politics right like that that one of the things that one of the things that the right wants to do is minimize politics as much as possible or at least capitalism wants to do that i mean maybe the the extreme right doesn't want to do that but certainly capitalism the less like the less people consider themselves political beings, the better, right? For the, mm. for the, for the capital status quo. And so I think that the, there is a, there's something to be said for uh, being politicized that, and that requires not thinking in terms of like, we can legally find a legal rem- remedy for everything, or we can criminalize certain things and then it's going to be okay. Right. So that, I think that there is an idea that that replaces political struggle. I mean, it's interesting that the U.S. just recently passed laws about gay marriage, right? And that was, prior to that, there was, which was done through political action to an extent, which replaced, like before it was just relying on the court to make the decision. So I I kind of, look, obviously I decried the over the Hobbes decision, but on a, in another way, I think it did force this issue back into the political arena out of the purely legal out of our hands arena. Yeah. I, I, I want to talk to you about that because I find, I find this part of your thinking actually quite interesting and it's not just in this book, but the distinction between uh, legality and politics are because the law and the rule of law, seems like it's belong beyond political reproach other than in its creation. Like, which 
in reality, I think we all know is not true and is never right. true. Right. Like, which is why. But why do you think, that, uh, particularly starting in the 60s and 70s, there was actually the liberal force of capitalism that started uh, focusing in on the law as a way to create um, rights as if those rights were not political categories? Like, why do you think that happened? Yeah, I think it happened in response to the 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 movement of the 60s, right? Like there was this incredible upheaval in the 60s. And I think that the you know, it was, what's interesting is the Warren Court's a little exceptional, but once the Burger Court, which continued those policies in many ways, that was a conserv I think basically a conservative court. So, I think that there was a sense of we can like if we if we allow certain social liberties, we can block off any kind, any more substantive political changes. So I do think that there is, I, I agree with you that, there, that of course the law is always political in all of its manifestations, but I do think that there's a different way of thinking, right? You think you can think of yourself as a political being, or you can think of yourself as, Oh, the law has handed me down these, these rights. You know, I, I was, a friend reminded me of this episode of Seinfeld where uh, Elaine, they're talking about having an argument, someone's arguing about abortion and she goes, uh, but you can't take away my right to have an abortion because the Supreme Court gave me that right. And I, and my friend was like, wow, she really totally missed the, missed the whole idea. But I think a lot of people thought that way. And so I think that's, that's a really depoliticizing way of conceiving yourself as a subject because like the law grant the court grants me these rights well no those rights were gained through a lot of political contestation by a lot of feminist activists right and and, and that just gets obliterated when it's the court harry blackman writes the decision and then you know so i think that's really again every legal thing is political but how, the question is how you conceive yourself as a subject. Yeah, uh, that's so. My my argument, I say this is a person who abandoned the study of law, <laughs> but uh, 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 who, but you know, I studied philosophy and and anthropology and English to be a lawyer, and then realized I didn't want to touch that. Um, but one of the things I can say about that is I think law is inherently conservative in a small C sense and, and in the way that you're talking about, because it moves to take the realm of political contestation away and in many ways, just naturalize the assertion. So like, um, and interestingly, there have been times when I've been reading right-wingers and they say that, and I'm like, well, they're they're actually the one being honest here that this is a political creation. There is no yeah. clear law going back to common law in the 12th century of of Norman peasant courts that we're claiming here. That like that's that's yeah. kind of a ridiculous assertion on the face of it. And then even more ridiculous is the idea that say the court grants us rights and those rights are inalienable, but then if they were truly inalienable, the court couldn't grant them. Right. Right. right? Like, like that's a contradiction in terms. Yeah. So, so I think that's an important thing to, to, to point out to people. Um, 
I find this I find this interesting though because it means that what this enjoyment is I think just as paradoxical as rightist ones but more sustainable ironically because for example if if everyone is together in that they don't belong in some key way and that is the answer out of the problem which is this like hyper pluralistic negative universalism right um we're all in this together because none of us are actually all in it um um that position while seemingly paradoxical or contradictory is stable right mm-hmm. um you can maintain that actually for a very long period of time whereas what we're describing the dynamics of the rightist view of this if that is the way it actually functions and, and i think in my understanding more or less does um there is a sense in which like the 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 political narrative is easier for them yeah. But the stability and the ability to actually have a kind of political subject is not there. Whereas we have like a very hard narrative to sell. We have a very, I mean, yeah. you know, it even goes back to the idea of like, what is workers politics? The aim of workers politics is to get rid of the idea of the worker as a class anyway. Right. right. Like, like workers politics is not about like, it's just good to be a worker. It's about like, this position sucks. We're all in it. And it would, if we actually had our society, um, we'd still all be in it. But um, if we recognize that it's in our mutual interest, that none of us actually completely belong in this system in the first place, then we can literally abolish this as a separate category. Right. right. I mean, that, that, right. So it's not about affirming the identity of the worker. I think that's the key thing, right? Like it's not, there's no leftist identity politics, right? Like there's no, you don't like get to say like, I can, I should feel good about being a worker. Instead, it's like, I should have that identity obliterated. So I think right. that's the, so I think you're, I love the way you put it. Like the leftist position is more stable, but it's a tougher sell as a narrative because the, the right is an easy sell. Like it's easy to get someone to say like, look, this is the, this is the source of all your problems. It's right here. And that's where you should, you know, put all your, hatred on and i think that's pretty it's pretty easy to to sell that oh yeah i mean what it doesn't say anything about you i mean one of the things about the leftist position that i think you know if we're going to say this as the leftist position and and again i think a left that realizes this is stronger than a left that doesn't let me put it that way um is that it also implies that you're acknowledging that like no one's going to be the perfect collective identity x like no one's going to be the perfect worker no one's going to be the perfect uh, person of color no one's going to be the perfect um activist that is not a thing that exists nor should we want it to and i think that that last part but the admission that there is no perfect one of this and also thus you cannot be it is hard to make like (laughs) Because it, it seems to say, well, well, you're saying is I can't be what I think is a fully fulfilled, whatever positive identity right. I have for that. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Like that your your positive identity is not going to be the site uh, that you, is not going to be something you're going to be able to realize. Right. And I think that's that's really disturbing. Like you want to think like, wow, I'm on a I'm on a path. I'm going to I'm, I'm going to I have an identity that's partially formed and I'm going to ha- I'm going to fulfill it. And then. 
but no, that, I think that that's what, you know, leftist politics takes away or emancipatory politics takes away that, that idea. Yeah. What I find interesting then, I, I was thinking about this in like, uh, Nietzsche's critique of Christianity as slave morality. Um, uh, I, I, I have a really bizarre relationship with, with Nietzsche in that I think he's a super important liberating thinker. And I also think he's the father of most reaction, like, <laughs> like simultaneously. Yeah. Um, I, I think I frustrate both sides of this debate on the great, yeah. the current Nietzsche wars. Cause I'm like, yeah, no, Nietzsche is great. He's also the reactionary yeah. you say he is, yeah. but he seems to like what, what troubles him so much about slave morality and, and Christianity seems to be this position. Um, which he then, I think, I think actually astutely ties um, to to resentment when people can't accept that position and try to assert themselves yeah. in the same kind of power relations yeah. um, th- uh, of you know the contemporary powerful, and that's where you do get a lot of the things he complains about being kind of true, like resentment politics, over policing, a, ten, a tendency towards what we in Freudian circles might be called super egoic functions like we were talking about earlier. Um, but that it comes from the realization that, well, if the master doesn't have the servant, um, there is no master. Right. And it means that we actually do in our non-belonging have a lot of the power here. Like, because it is in our non-belonging, they're able to posit anything to control us with in the first place. So the posit an organic community to which we were fallen out of. Yeah. And but this is my, uh, you know, as a Christopher Lash scholar, this is kind of my critique of, of elements of Lash, where I think he falls into like workerism as a positive identity in and of itself. And I'm, and as a, you know, I, I, am, I was, um, I come from a working class background and, and both the common and Marxist definition of the term. And, you know, that shit sucks. Yeah. Um, like, 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 it's not and something it you should it want. It doesn't make you more conscious, right? Like, I think that's a big, important part. Like, I, I, I come from a similar background, and, mm. and, and, you know, I don't know. I think it warps your way of thinking. I mean, not that being rich makes your thinking clearer, but I don't think you know. There's something about work that is uh, uh, epistemologically advantageous necessarily so yeah i i agree um and so i always this is like my my thing about like marxist politics i'm all about putting class are putting the obliteration of class as primary thing in my politics i'm willing to put that first but when you start positing like a worker's identity as something i should positively affirm I start feeling like we're actually moving into a small C and I use small C here conservative just to mean that it functions a lot more like the way you're describing enjoyment on the right functioning where we are positing a worker and then we have to posit some other shit like the PMC or something that, um, that doesn't belong despite the fact that wasn't even the point of the original PMC thesis. But so, and you see this now, in this kind of dual impulse on the on the on the social democratic ish left to both want to claim everybody as a worker, but also then to immediately stop blaming 
uh, certain categories of, of wage earners as not being real workers, if they are salaried or uh, a certain racial category, so the white working class are right now super common if you're, quote, PMC, vaguely defined. So generally, that just means you have a degree in something. Um, and and then that's our you, you're they use productivist versus non-productivist categories. Uh, and I'm like, well, this to me is is interesting because it's why are you so interested in a defining the class that we want to abolish, even though we want to abolish it by, you know, yes, there's dictatorship of the proletariat. Yes, 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 yes. I get this. But B, it also indicates that like the moment you start seeing this as a universal class, there's an impulse even in leftists to go do the friend enemy distinction within those ranks. Right. for whatever reason. And I think your concept of enjoyment actually clarifies to me why that happens, because otherwise it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Right, right. No, no, I agree totally. And I also think once you go to that, you've abandoned the leftist position. Like once you, and I don't think it matters who it is, right? Like mm. who gets put in the position of enemy. But once you have someone in that position, I think you've abandoned the leftist position altogether. So I, I think that that's, it's like it's like within the heart of the left, there's the rightest temptation. <laughs> I think that that's really that's really the case. Yeah, I think you kind of I heard you talking about like you know the the point of of the left shouldn't be to like just destroy Elon Musk um, as obnoxious as a as as a uh the the south african a uh, south african rentier is um it should yeah. be to destroy what elon musk can currently is by positing that even he shouldn't want it right right like, exactly exactly like i i i i was talking to astra taylor i think there's an act of anti-debt activist and and she said look the we should feel we should feel bad for Elon Musk. I mean, not rather than seeing him as an enemy, we should say, "Hey, come over to our side. Your side sucks. Like your position sucks. It's not like like he has certain material comforts, but psychically, and I think this is a real important point. Like because I think it, it's tempting to think, oh, material comforts equals psychic well being, and I think obviously, I'm for equal distribution of material comforts, right? But that, I don't think that you can equate having material comforts with psychic well-being. In fact, I think it's almost the opposite. I think the more that you're materially plush, the more you're psychically in a, in a bad situation. So I think that's a key thing to recognize as, as a, as a leftist, really important. Yeah. Um, I think I think it's interesting because, but I think it's also, like I said, it's a tough, it's a tough psychological sell. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Um, because you're asking people, I think to live in something like what we call in like artistic terms, negative capacity, which is like realizing that you are both like that your way of fitting in will only ever be by not fitting in yeah. your way of of having a, a functional uh rationally planned economic society will be by admitting that there probably isn't a functional rationally planned economic society yeah. like that th these things 
seem like almost flippantly paradoxical. I know, but the fitting in one is kind of, I think that people intuitively kind of get it because no one has ever felt like they fit in, right? Like <laughs> no one has ever been at a party and thought, oh, wow, I really fit in at this party unless they're like, they've had 20 beers, right? Like there's mm -hmm. no, anybody that's just in the normal state of mind in a classroom, in an office building, like it's always like, oh, everybody else seems like they fit in, but I kind of don't feel like I do. And I've never been in a situation where I felt, I've been on, I don't know, football teams. I've been on in, in classrooms. I've been in departments. I've been in offices. I've always felt the same way. So I think in that sense, I think it does make, it It, it, it kind of resonates with people. This this like, and, and I think the problem is we'd have this fantasy of, wait a minute, there's these other people there and they do fit in. I'm the one feeling like I don't quite fit in, but actually everyone feels that way. That's the universal feeling. So I, I, I think it is, if we can strip away that idea that there are these other people that actually are, are feeling like they're in, then I think you're, 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 you can kind of get there. Well, yeah, I, I guess it makes sense. I mean, it, it is kind of key to like my idea that like the the reason why talking about, like individualism versus collectivism is dumb is because they're both utterly uh, oddly interdependent on each other. You don't have an individual self without collective. I mean, literally, like you can't articulate who you are without a language, and a language is not something you develop on your own. Absolutely, like like even in a Wittgensteinian sense, like there's no private language that's meaningful. Yeah. Um, so great leftist, by the way, I don't think he knew it, but I think he's that for the, for the reason that you just said, mm -hmm. I think the private language argument is a, is a, is a communist argument that he doesn't, he did, obviously he was a right winger, but he did not know that it was, but I think it really, it really was. It would be nice to see a few analytic philosophers make that argument, but I'm sorry, that's my own little problem. Well, I mean, I think Otto Nuraf kind of did actually. Okay, but, good. To, to... <laughs> um, uh, but in general, no. I mean, and and I, Wittgenstein's an interesting case because I do think his inclinations were generally rightish, except towards the end of his life, he became interesting in Shafra, which is not my favorite form of Marxism. Yeah, I will totally admit that. But he was looking into that towards the end of his life. Um, and he had some relationship with with uh, the Red Vienna and the Vienna Circle. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, and he read Freud too. He's interested in Freud. So, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I have come around I on. I didn't mean to derail you. Sorry. No, no, no. I was actually just about to mention. I've come around on Freud. I'm on the record years ago being vaguely anti-Freudian <laughs> uh, because I thought most of it was. Uh, used to think most of it was warmed over Nietzscheanism and thus the reactionary. Um, but I have spent a lot more time with Freud. I spent a lot more time with Freud to trying to figure out why all you guys like Lacan so much. Yeah. Um, um, and you haven't totally run me over to Lacan, but you've gotten me to take him a lot more seriously. <laughs> um, and one of the, and actually a bunch of, I'm also interested in Wilfred Bryan and a bunch of the psychoanalytic thinkers. Um, but um all that all that's just to say that i find this much more useful as an explanatory metrics to get to some of the paradoxical statements and when when um 
interestingly enough, and I, I'm gonna I'm gonna get your take on this. When it is easiest for the right to attack the left, is ironically when the left is enacting right wing instincts. So like they can attack us on council culture, right? And now, yeah. of course, we all know, and we see this with Ron DeSantis immediately that they don't. I, I shouldn't say they. That most conservative politicians, I actually can't speak for most conservatives, I'm not going to project on their mind, but most conservative politicians do not give a shit about free speech. Right. Objectively speaking, they will censor your speech, speech in a second. They're historically the source of many censorious laws. But they're, they're way, the reason why they can attack the left on this and it stick in a way that a lot of liberals can't seem to like grasp is that it seems to point to some fundamental hypocrisy on the left. And ironically, it's because we're acting like them. <laughs> so, oh, I I I totally agree with that. Totally agree with that. That when that it is the point at which the left is most vulnerable when it makes the right wing gesture. I mean, that's why it was like when was it easiest for capitalist America to attack communism when Stalinism gets installed, right? Like mm. like. like what were the, where were the, it's interesting. So it, in the 20s, where were the attacks on on the threat of communism? Like they were, they existed, but they weren't as vociferous as they were in the late 30s, 40s, at the height of commun, at the height of Stalinism, right? So I, I, abs, I totally agree with this idea that any, any time the left betrays itself toward in the direction of the right, it exposes itself to the right. And I mean, you have to give the devil its due. Like the right is pretty good at knowing when to pounce on these betrayals of leftist principles and 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 attacking it in the name of whatever. And I think you're right. Like what the what the value is, who care they don't care. Like it can be free speech, it can be whatever, like equality. They don't care about that, but they can still they'll use equality like against critical race theory. It's in the name of Oh, we want to treat everybody equal. We don't want to, but right, and that doesn't matter. But but I think that there, nonetheless, is this. There's always a point at which there's a internal problem, like internal betrayal of the left toward the right. I, I think I never thought that before, but I think it's a really great point by you. Yeah, I was thinking of it as I was reading your book because I think about oh, every time the right gets us. So like I think about this. So for example, think about the John Birch Society. What does it do? It, it devises anti-communism based on the structure it thinks that Marxist-Leninists used to actually overthrow the, the Russian Empire. That's explicit. Like, they, they, yeah. they, they actually actively say that. Then uh, you look at, like, the Reagan revolution. Well, who was Reagan's big model? And actually, Reagan, ironically, did way more with it than any leftist ever did. Reagan read rules for radicals. There's a reason why like all these conservatives up into the middle of the aughts were like obsessed with that book, but they were also using it as their, um, as their model for how to like go in and mess with leftist politics was community organizing. Ironically, it works better for them than it does for us. Yeah, it does. Um, <laughs> um, um, I think about like leaderless resistance, which is originally in, in the 50s and 60s, kind of a, an anarcho-communist idea that becomes appropriated by lone wolf right-wing terrorists. And now they're the only people who talk about it. Um, and you just see this over and over and over again. But what they're also picking up in those things is impulses or, you know, deviations from my perspective towards like 
rightish or super egoic or controlling functions or a kind of positing of a positive collective identity that's overly stated and not true um, mm -hmm. on the left. And they can seize on that just consistently over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, I'm reading another one of your books, uh, the racist fantasies book. Did they get that title yeah, right? Racist fantasy. It's singular, I think, but yeah. Okay. Racist fantasy. Um, um, just started it, not as into it, but it seems to me that these, that this and that book are in dialogue with one another. Would you like to oh, talk sure. about that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that book, the idea of that book, it's a similar thing. Because I mean, the, the whole discussion we've been having about belonging and non-belonging plays out in the racist fantasy book for sure. But the idea there is that the racial other functions as this obstacle to the ultimate enjoyment that we could, that the racist could have if they just get beyond the obstacle. So there's this, so racism targets the obstacle in order to get to a certain object of desire but the object of desire is only desirable insofar as the obstacle exists in, in front of it. So it's exactly what we've been saying. If the racist gets rid of that, eliminates the racial other, then the obstacle is just banal, right? That's the, I mean, I, I, one of the things I cite in there is Hitler in Mein Kampf has this amazing section where he talks about the lascivious Jew with this, like looking at the, at the ger young German uh, virgin, lustfully you know and that, that and and the idea is that the jew has the young jewish guy has such an advantage uh how would you say it like uh, romantically sexually over the german because he's willing to you know seduce go outside the rules do all these things and so it, it's interesting that that makes the german woman who's otherwise just an ordinary german woman whatever all of a sudden she gets elevated to this incredible status. I mean, American South does the same thing, right? Like white right. womanhood gets this incredible value just because of the black threat to that white womanhood. If it didn't exist, then white women would be just as ordinary as everybody else, all of us are. So I think it's an interesting, I mean, horrible, of course, but also interesting. Like the struck, what, what I was struck by is how, uh, this is why the title is singular how universal that structure is in every aspect of racism that I was able to, I looked at a lot of different instances and it's all, it's the same. Like I talk about India, I talk about even Rwanda, same. You, you can see the same, like Rwanda had its own version of Fox news propagating a certain racist fantasy that led to the genocide. So it's really interesting how that same structure is evident everywhere where there's racist, the, uh, you know, Racist. Yeah, racist, chauvinist, ethnicist, all, all that yeah. Yeah, can be collapsed kind of together in that yeah. categorization. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I mean, I find it interesting, for example, like, um, I uh, am not always a huge fan of Abraham X. Kendi, but I did like his first book, Stand from the Beginning. And one of the things he notes is like, the construction of whiteness actually comes after the construction of blackness, and but it comes in response to it. And if, and if the, and literally like, okay, we construct blackness, the Portuguese specifically construct blackness as a category to justify remaining in the slave and actually expanding the slave trade, despite the fact that they now know they're getting Christian, uh, some Christian slaves, which is totally against um, the prior justification for this. So we have to come up with a new categorization system, but then that categorization system requires us to define um, this as uh, 
like not black, thus white. Then, and then once we get into European settler expansion, that becomes necessary as a shifting category. I mean, it's an expanding and contracting category, but it's, it's necessary to maintain the category of blackness. And if it ever went away, if the other ever went away as a category, like you fully subsume them, then the whiteness is unnecessary and would immediately fall away, which is why you don't hear it in certain, like, like it's, I'm sure that in the ancient world, people notice skin. In fact, they know they did, but, because uh, it was written about it, but it's not as it is not a social identity category. The Absolutely right? true. I think it's such a crucial point that really in the pre-capitalist world, there wasn't a such thing as race. And I think that's a really important point. Like it's a mod, it's a very much a modern phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, people that say, oh, people have always hated people because of skin color. Well, first of all, they're not hating them because of their skin color. That's the number one thing. And the second thing is, that's just not true. <laughs> it is simply not true. So I think that's a really important point that you raise. And I think that we get into this problem of we think that race creates racism and forget that it's racism that always creates race. Right. And I think that that's a that's a you know, I was reading this thing I don't know, it was on Times or CNN, maybe it was the Times. And they're like, well, there's an increasing population, uh, increasing Latino population in a certain town. So the problem of racism has increased there. And I'm like, uh, no, I think it's the opposite. Way. <laughs> like it, It's like you have to think of the way in which racism is creating what seems like a racial problem. I, and I think I just think that's absolutely uh, a way in which the act of racism gets mystified and, and made into something natural, like it gets naturalized. Right. And it gets naturalized in ways that even break it, betray it. For example, we just talked about this. You mentioned La- uh, Latino and I'm like, well, Latin isn't a race category, really. I mean, even like, but we, but it is in the, in the popular imagination. It It's kind of one of these, it's actually become kind of Schrodinger's race category because sometimes <laughs> we talk about stuff like right Hispanics. And sometimes we just talk about Latins and I'm like, that the ability to make that distinction at all indicates that the category breaks down yeah. there. I used to live in Egypt and I had to give the uh, SAT in Egypt, which, okay, doesn't seem like a big deal. Uh, when you give the SAT anywhere, though, they, or the PSA anywhere, they, they give you the form and it has the American racial categories on it. Let me tell you how much that broke my poor Egyptian students' minds because... Yeah. I taught 60% Egyptians and they're like, what race are we? And I'm like, I don't even know. Like, I don't know where you should put, but whatever. It's so complicated, right? Because it's like first Latino, like uh, Hispanic or not is an ethnic category. Right. And then, then racial category is separate, but that also includes Hispanic. So <laughs> it's a very, like the system is so, and I, it's clearly been, it's made, it's been put together piecemeal, right? Like no one sat down and thought of the whole thing, but, it's just it, it's fascinating how those you see like even just looking at it with the, the slightest bit of objective eyes you're just like this is kind of crazy it's just crazy right i mean it, it actually is interesting because it also hits the the remains of older ethnic categories because yeah. latin and arab for example are both their language categories and it's how we used to think about this yeah um that's like all the categories of belonging in like the ancient world well, not all of it, but most of them are either religious or language. Yeah. They're not. It's absolutely in the way you think right, of it. Right, right. That's how, that's the key thing, right? Like that's the shift. 
that happens in modernity is that like religious and language become right. And, and then even religious distinctions become racialized, right? Like that's another interesting part about modernity. Like you can't, there's no, like, like Muslim is a racialized category in the modern world in a way that it absolutely wouldn't have been in the pre-modern world. Right. Um, Same with Jew. I mean, right. Exactly. exactly. I mean, it's maybe the most interesting one and the most it's where it's most it's clearest. Right. Like Mm -hmm. like before prior to, I don't know, 1700 something, you could like you could you could get out of a pogrom by converting. Right. And and the Nazis like specifically looked for converts to gas. So it's like it's it's the opposite. Right. Like like not only did conversion not get you out of it, it like it it brought this more suspicion on you. So it's a yeah. total yeah. reversal. Yeah. I, actually, the moment where that starts um, is 1492. It is literally the beginning of the modern world. And, uh, because that's when you have the expulsion of the Jews and Muslims from Spain, but you have the new Christians. And then for, for property reasons, there's this want to, to get some of the property back from these new Christians. And so you start, putting them under extreme scrutiny. You start encouraging inquisitions, et cetera, uh, that are really going after people based on the, their, their, their racial family. Class. Yeah. Their family's ancestry. And you get the idea of Muslims and Jews as a, as a race beginning there. It isn't fully articulated till the, until the 18th, 19th century. But, but yeah, I mean, but again, this is this whole rear dynamic of the modern world. But what I find interesting is this enjoyment based on sacrifice and then projection. And that parallel to like racial fans, which are also kind of constructed identities, which you need sacrifice and projection to, ma- to maintain. Um, that dynamic works in all these areas. And, yeah. and I think in all these areas... When the when the left starts positing a positive identity that can be coherently deemed to here is when we're always open to the most attack. And I think yeah. and I also think it's when we're always open to acting the most like our enemies. It's like yeah, well, we, totally agree with that. Just totally, just totally. Yeah. Um and and it's it's something that you didn't say in your book, but I that was like it was just coming to me as I was I reading that it. I was like Yeah, I wish I had written that. That's a great idea. <laughs> Yeah, like because I was just like, oh, this is how this enjoyment thing actually works, and this is how they get us on it, like every single time. Yeah. But it is, it is also interesting. Me, I, I do want to want to know why you think that they've done, and I don't know why. All right, so this is this is me spitballing with you. I don't have a theory as to why, okay. but it does seem like like who who's having the most fun out of the enjoyment changes depending on what phase of capitalism we're in. Um, like I was talking about how Lash was identifying certain trends in Fordism, which is really what cultural narcissism is about is the end of Fordism. Um, and I find that, I find that hilarious that people try to appropriate that book for now. And like parts of it are true now, but he's not, he's writing about a completely different structure of the economy. That's true. That's true. Um, um, but why do you think that the changes in say, like, like how much government involvement is in um, the welfare state or something uh, seem to change who gets to benefit from these dynamics more. You mean enjoyment wise? Yeah. Enjoyment wise. Yeah. Enjoyment wise. Yeah. I, I, I think like the more part of it is the, 
the more laissez-faire the government system is, I think the more uh, the 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 more that enjoyment is attached to the left. And then when the left gets more invested in like governmental intervention, as I think it has to be, then mm-hmm. I think enjoyment switches to more the. I wouldn't say enjoyment. I just say the enjoyment advantage, right? Like I think at, at certain different points in history, each side has an enjoyment advantage. I think now we're living in a time of, where the right has a pretty extreme enjoyment advantage, which isn't to say that the left can't act and 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 constitute its own form of enjoyment. In contrast, but I think it's like the playing field is slanted, and so we're fighting all the time uphill now. But I think in I think you know like the even the even even the first communist revolution i think there was an enjoyment advantage on the left like i think that there i think in the french revolution there was an enjoyment advantage on the left i think in haiti there's an enjoyment advantage on the left so i think there are these moments where there's a real advantage on the left like put the aristocrats heads on a on a stick right like there's a there's a real sense of like we can unleash a kind of enjoyment i don't mean that obviously i'm not for putting people's head on a stick necessarily, but my, my, because that falls into exactly the same kind of problem that we were just talking about. But the, the, my point is that there's a wild unleashing of enjoyment that was hitherto repressed and constrained in, in those revolutionary moments. I mean, even the, the Paris commune, I think is another example. I think new deal is a great example, like that point in American history 60s great society again i think a point where enjoyment's on the side of the left and then nixon kind of is that figure that flips it like there's a there's a sense like and 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 how is it how is it configured to the like all of a sudden with great society government gets a certain like it's it's its footprint becomes bigger and that op- it seemingly that opens the door for this right wing mm-hmm. space to enjoy in the other direction, right? So I think I, I that's how I would think of it, but I don't have a theory of it. So, you know, I, I mean, your guess is as good as mine, I think, but that's what it would be. Like, how, what's the stamp, what's the footprint of the, of the state's, you know, attempted egalitarian fix on the situation? Yeah, this is uh, just me thinking about it. It seems like whoever has enjoyment has what, like, someone like Emmanuel Wallace would call the, counter systemic force that's in their favor at that yeah. moment yeah um i don't have a good explanation totally as to why it does seem like the role in the state in the administration of the state definitely seems to be hugely part of it there are times where that doesn't quite map on to me like i think about occupy but i also think about like well both right and left seem pretty administratively blah um yeah. in the <laughs> in the odds like yeah. it just was yeah. It's like it isn't like there's anyone to like. Um, well, it's because the left was became so technocratic, right? Like mm-hmm. I think that, that was part of the, and Obama just continued like that started under Clinton, and then it just continued under Obama to a large extent. Yeah. And then there's yeah. nothing to enjoy. I mean, technocracy is very hard to enjoy, right? <laughs> it's very hard to enjoy. Yeah. yeah. That's a that's a good place to to, to end on. Um. So. I got a lot out of your book, uh, uh, Enjoyment, um, Right and Left. left and I think left. it's Right and Left, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right and Left. Um, it's out from Sublation. It's the first book out from Sublation. You can find it on Amazon. Um, 
people should check out your other books. You have written many. Um, yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, I was like, I'm going to read it, but uh, and I went and started getting your books. I'm like, oh man, I got to go to the library. There's so many of these. Yeah. Um, I'll get to the one I'm interviewing on. But um, uh, but it has started me down a course of reading um your work, and I will say you are one of the more approachable psychoanalytic thinkers. Thanks um, for that. <laughs> uh, there are many who are not. Um, um, I'm not a dumb man, and there are some times when I read Lacan, and I'm like, Yeah, I don't think he should be read, actually. But <laughs> fair enough. Yeah. Um, um, that uh, leads to my to my joke is I I always well it's not really a joke it's more of a statement I always feel like I know somebody's Lacan like I know Zizek's Lacan I know Bruce Jinks Lacan I got no idea anything about Lacan yeah I, like, think, that's, I think that's the right position to have actually yeah I, uh, I often this semester is an exception but I I often will teach a class on Lacan where we never read Lacan very common so I I just I mean he's just so needlessly difficult it's just I, I i have no patience for that so yeah um well i'm glad that there is someone interested in that thought who doesn't have patience for it because <laughs> i have read a couple of of uh essays applying like lacan to Alain badu and and i've looked at that paper and i'm going yeah, I have an MFA and a, and a and a master's and a bunch of educational background, and I've read like more, and I have no idea what you just yeah, said. like weird. like I have no clue. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, but anyway, uh, thank you so much for coming on. Do you have anything else you want to plug? My people no, I'm, I'm I'm kind of against plugs, so I'm, oh, good. <laughs> I'm happy to to. Talk to anyone. I'll be if you, someone wants to talk to me. I'm happy to email them. So or have them email me. So, all right, all right. Um, thank you so much. Take care. Yeah, great seeing you. Bye bye. Thank you for supporting Varnblog. If you would like more, you can find our stream on YouTube under my name, C. Derek Varn. You can also find us on Patreon, where you can subscribe for early audio access, additional shows, unexpurged audios, Q&As with me on video, and other perks, such as access to our archives, etc. There are three levels of support. One level even gets you on Patreon shows. Occasionally here you will hear shows done with other creators. I hope you enjoy them. We'd like to thank our producer, Paul Channel Strip, and Bitter Lake and Jason Miles for making our intro and exit music. And thank you for all you do. If you can't support us financially, you can support us by leaving a review on iTunes or your pod catcher of choice. Have a great evening. Thank you.